Hello, and welcome back to Ethereum, Audible Ethereum In-Depth. I am Yehoshua Zlatogorsky, and I am psyched to be reading the second part of Three Attacks on Proof-of-Stake Ethereum. And you know why I am psyched? Because A, this is kind of as nerdy and as geeky as it gets, and B, because the merge to Proof-of-Stake is coming. And we gotta brush up on these kinds of attacks and what can happen. And that's why I am psyched for you to be listening to the second part. If you haven't listened to the first part, go listen to last week's episode, because without listening to that, well, this one will just be like listening to Unintelligible Babble, which it might be anyway. So before we dive in, I want to give you a brief recap of last week. And basically, this paper builds on previous papers that discuss issues, problems with proof-of-stake Ethereum. One of them is one that we've read before on MEV. Um, others are discuss reorg attacks of different kinds and short and long-range attacks. Maybe we'll read them in the future, but for now, just so you know that this paper builds on previous research. It's partly funded by the Ethereum Foundation, and the thesis of the paper is that there are these two kinds of attacks, which I'll get into in a second, and this paper brings to bear a third kind of attack that also reduces the constraints on them and combines them to create a more harmful long-range attack. So just to kind of go back to the intro introduction, the core building blocks of what we were discussing are the consensus mechanism of proof-of-stake Ethereum. And it's built of two kind of consensus mechanisms. One is short range and the other is long range. And range here is in terms of time. And you have two, they're called LMD Ghost and Casper FFG. LMD Ghost is the short range one. It deals in local time slots for blocks. Remember in proof of stake Ethereum, we have a block proposed and accepted every 12, 15 seconds. And over an epoch, which is 32 of those slots, we have many blocks, and every epoch, we justify and finalize previous blocks. So once a an epoch is justified and finalized, then it becomes sort of canonical in the chain. And here we're dealing with attacks that threaten both of those time periods, the short range, which is specific block slots, and also the long range, which is epochs. And together that that is the threat vector that we're worried about because an epoch is a, a big chunk of time. We're already talking about six and a half minutes or so. And if you can restructure that or create an quote unquote orphan epoch, that is super dangerous for a consensus mechanism. Uh, and so that was what we discussed last time. The two kinds of attacks are reorg attacks where I'll give an example from what we discussed in the MEV paper where we are bribing miners to reorganize blocks so that we can extract the maximum amount of value. That was an example of a reorg attack. And the second is a category that we haven't touched on yet in a, in a full-on read-through, and those are network adversarial, adversarial network conditions. So basically, when you're expecting to hear back from someone on the line, so to say, and you don't, and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting, and, and that line has gone offline. And, and therefore, there are these network conditions that are adversarial, and that causes a delay in consensus. And those are the two kinds of attacks that this paper builds on. 
So last week we read through the introduction, the abstract, kind of a deep dive on the Ethereum protocol, the LMD Ghost, and the Casper FFG mechanisms. And today we're going to be reading through what the refined reorg attack looks like. And then we're going to be going through the refined liveness attack. And then we're going to be combining them to towards the end of the paper with a summary and what this means kind of in forward-looking thoughts. As I did last time, I might skip over some parts just because they're technical or, or numbers-based or chart-based, and I will also try and stop occasionally and intersperse my own commentary or explanations because this is a read-through that's tough on the audio brain. So we're just going to be mindful of that. Now, if you're wondering how our audio brain works, well, there's lots of material that I've actually put out on this topic for Alp Audio, which is the startup that I founded two and a half years ago. And that's where we do everything about audio education. We build audio courses from scratch. We partner with professors to turn their content, whether it's a Zoom lecture or a book, into an audio course. And audio learning is pretty different from visual learning or reading learning or being just lectured at because there are all kinds of different constraints and advantages. So for example, you're probably listening to this while you're doing something else. So on the one hand, you're listening to this and you would probably never have been reading the paper that we're going to be reading through today. So that's already an advantage. It's accessible, it's easy, and so you're going to listen to it. The disadvantage is you're doing something else. And so it's cognitively more overwhelming. And so when you're doing proper audio learning, you have to repeat yourself more often. You have to simplify terms, repeat them over and over, give you a clear roadmap of what you're learning, what you're going to learn, what you've learned, and then always summarize things and also add in a visual aspect that you can do later. So all of that, all of those principles come to bear in Alp Audio, where you can learn topics in depth, on the go, wherever you want. And we add all of those things in. Every lesson has a summary and flashcards and there's stories so that you can remember things. It's really built for audio first learning. So with that, let's dive into Three Attacks on Proof-of-Stake Ethereum, and this is written again by Casper Schwartz-Schilling, Joachim New, Barnaby Monot, Aditya Asgon-Kar, Ertem Nusret-Tas, and David Tse. And apologies to anyone who I've mispronounced their last name. We're going to be diving in on page four with section three, a refined reorg attack. 3.1 Motivation. Previous work described a malicious low-cost reorg attack. In particular, the attack leverages strategic timing of broadcasting blocks and attestations, as opposed to honestly releasing them when supposed to. In a nutshell, in the strategy, an adversarial block proposer in slot N keeps its proposal hidden. The honest block proposer in slot N plus 1 will then propose a completing block. The adversary can now use its committee members' votes from both slots N and N plus 1 to vote for the withheld block of slot N in an attempt to outnumber honest votes of the proposal of slot N plus 1. As a result, these blocks, proposed by honest validators, may end up orphaned, i.e. they are displaced out of the chain chosen by LMD Ghost. This reorg strategy is part of a bigger scheme to delay consensus in the previous work that we just cited. We show how the attack can be modified such that the number of adversary validators required is significantly reduced, from a set size of linear in the total number of validators to a constant set size. 
Indeed, for a one-block reorg, as little as one adversarial validator is sufficient. Note that, similar to the previous work, the adversarial strategy does not involve any slashable behavior, and is therefore relatively cheap. In section 5, we further improve upon this refined reorg attack, combining strategies from both this section and section 4. So that was the previous work, and it's the adversarial network conditions where you are delaying your block and therefore overwhelming another block and causing a reorg. And important to note that this does not have a slashable offense. Now, this attack, by the way, and we'll get to the sentence in a moment, is the kind of attack that I quoted at the end of last week's read-through, where to a ridiculously high probability of 99.6%, an adversary with only 0.09% of the total stake is in a position to execute this one kind of reorg. So now we're going to go into the refined reorg strategy that this paper brings to bear. Section 3.2. Consider figure 1, which shows the adversary being the proposer of slot n plus 1, as well as controlling a committee member in slot n plus 1. We describe the adversarial strategy to perform a one-block reorg, and I'll just describe the figure here for a second. So you have block n, and remember, for block n, you have the block itself, and then you have the committee members who kind of approve it. And in n plus 1, there is a proposed block, and there is a adversarial committee member out of, let's say, there are just five overall committee members. So now the state is we have slot n, which is a block that is honest and legit. And then we have n plus 1, which is also honest and legit, but it's hidden. We haven't published it yet. Now, n plus 2's slot comes, and they don't see n plus 1. So they go and create a block on top of n, right? But just as they do that, n plus 1, our hidden block, all of a sudden gets published. And n plus 1 has all of the appropriate voting for it. All of the committee members have approved. And then n plus 2 was attesting that it comes from n. But all of a sudden, the chain sort of has a more appropriate head, and n plus 3 doesn't get built on n plus 2. It goes, it skips back to n plus 1. And here, this is a case of a reorg because n plus 2 was an honest node. They were an honest validator. And because the malicious member of n plus 1 hid their block until they're just the, the right time, their block just got orphaned out all of their transactions go to waste and they don't get any reward. And so that is a way to do this reorg attack. So that is figure one that shows the structure of n plus one hiding their block just in time. And then that creates n plus two to be orphaned and n plus three to build directly on top of n plus one. So now we are going to describe the adversarial strategy to perform this one block reorg. Step one is at the beginning of slot n plus one, the adversary privately creates block n plus one on block n and privately attests to it. Honest validators do not see block n plus one, and so they attest to the previous head of the chain, which is block n. In step two, at the beginning of the next slot, an honest validator proposal proposes block n plus two. Assuming zero network latency for now, the adversary finally publishes the private block and attestation from slot n plus 1, at the same time as block n plus 2 is released. Honest validators now see both block n plus 1 
and its one attestation, as well as block n plus 2. These blocks are conflicting because they share the same parent, block n. Another result of sharing the same parent is that block n plus 1 inherits all the weight of block n, in particular, the honest attestations from slot n plus 1 voting for block n also count in favor of it. Hence, in slot n plus 2, all honest validators vote for block n plus 1 as head of the chain, because it has more weight due to the single adversarial attestation from slot n plus 1. Finally, at the beginning of slot n plus 3, an honest validator proposes block n plus 3, pointing to block n plus 1 as its parent. This effectively orphans block n plus 2 and brings the reorg attack to its conclusion. The above strategy shows that a block proposer which controls a single committee member of the same slot can successfully perform a one reorg. Naturally, the logic of the strategy can be extended to reorg attacks of arbitrary length k. The refined reorg attack described here improves on the strategy proposed in our previous work by removing the need for the adversary to compete with the committee of slot n plus k plus 1. While the improvement for long-range reorg attacks may not be as significant, short-range attacks are considerably more feasible using the above-refined strategy. In particular, one reorg attacks are effectively always possible for large enough parties, with currently 230,000 active validators and 32 slots per epoch, an adversary controlling 200 validators, which amounts to 0.09% of total stake, has a 99.8% chance of being selected a block proposer at least once per any given day. And once selected as block proposer in a particular slot, controls at least one committee member validator in that slot with a probability of 99.8%. So with more than 99.6% probability, an adversary with 0.09% of total stake is in a position to execute a one reorg for any given day. We will now relax the assumption of zero network latency. Proof of stake Ethereum's fork choice rule only considers attestations that are at least one slot old. So votes from slot n plus two do not count in the fork choice for slot of n plus two. Further, a committee member is supposed to attest if, quote, A, the validator has received a valid block from the expected block proposer for the assigned slot, or B, one-third of the slot has transpired, whichever comes first, end quote. After block n plus 2 is broadcasted to the network, honest validators immediately attest to it upon reception, unless by that time they see another chain as leading in fork choice. Thus, the adversary must ensure that a majority of validators of slot n plus 2 see block n plus 1, and the adversary's attestation voting for block n plus 1, before they see block n plus 2, but after block n plus 2 is proposed. That way, it ensures that it extends block n. This proves to be a non-trivial, but practically feasible issue. And by the way, this is due to network latency issues. Remember, block slots are 12 or 15 seconds long. They're pretty short, although that's a long period of time for computers. But still, there is a network latency. And so you have to time this pretty correctly to get this kind of reorg to work. And that's why they're discussing this issue. Suppose the adversary controls a number of nodes 
at different locations in the topology of the peer-to-peer -peer gossip network. These nodes might still be physically co-located. This is possible without greater difficulty because the gossip network has no defenses against such Sybil attacks. Then, some adversarial node will likely receive the new proposal block n plus 2 relatively early on in its dissemination process. The adversary can then release the private block and attestation in a coordinated fashion from all the different locations in the peer-to-peer -to -peer topology where the adversary controls nodes. Due to the superior number of sources of the adversarial block and attestation, it's likely that these arrive earlier than the proposal block n plus 2 at enough of a majority of honest nodes to ultimately orphan block n plus 2. So that is the reorg attack. And I'll just recap it really briefly. Basically what we're doing is there's an honest block n. We, let's say, are the malicious block proposer for n plus 1. And we know that we can do that in advance because Ethereum lets you know x amount of time in advance that you're going to be proposing a block. We hide n plus 1 until n plus 2 is released. The second n plus 2 is released, we immediately release n plus 1. And because of the way that the consensus of LMD Ghost is structured, n plus 1 beats out n plus 2. They both have the same parent block, n, and n plus 1 gets more weight. And therefore, n plus 1 gets adopted. And when n plus 3 comes along, it ignores n plus 2 and builds on top of n plus 1. And we just screwed over n plus 2. So that's this reorg attack. And you can do that even without kind of perfect network conditions by being smart in where you quote unquote physically place your nodes in the gossip network. Now we're moving on to section four, which is a redefined liveness attack. 4.1 Motivation. Earlier works have described balancing type attacks against variants of the ghost fork choice rule used in the proof of stake Ethereum as modeled in the Gasper protocol. In particular, the attack described uses adversarial network delay to show that proof-of-stake Ethereum is not secure in traditional, partially synchronous networks. While adversarial network delay, up to some delay bound, is a widely employed assumption in the consensus literature, there is disagreement whether it's appropriate for internet-scale, open participation consensus. As a result, past attacks are often seen as impractical and have not been mitigated. Quote, Note that this attack does depend on networking assumptions that are highly contrived in practice, the attacker having fine-grained control over latencies of individual validators. End quote. We show how the attacks can be modified and implemented so that an adversary controlling 15% of stake can stall proof-of-stake Ethereum without requiring adversarial network delay. For every large number of validators, ever smaller fractions of adversarial stake suffice. To this end, we show through experiments that aggregate properties of many individual random message propagation processes, for example, within time t, this transmission is received by a fraction of x of nodes, in real-world internet-scale peer-to-peer gossip networks, are sufficiently predictable to give the adversary the required control over how many validators see which adversarial messages when. None of the adversarial actions are slashable protocol violations. So I'll just stop here and the recap here is basically what we're proposing in this paper right now is that there, if someone has 15% of the stake on proof of stake Ethereum, 
they can stall the network just by controlling what message gets seen by whom and when. And important, this is so important, is that none of these adversarial actions are slashable protocol violations. And so it's very hard to defend against them because there is no skin in the game. There's no mechanism preventing people from just doing this until they succeed. 4.2, high-level idea. Recall that the balancing attack consists of two steps. First, adversarial block proposers initiate two competing chains, call them left and right. Then a handful of adversarial votes per slot, released under carefully chosen circumstances, suffice to steer honest validators' votes so as to keep the consensus in a tie between the two chains and consequently stall consensus. Assume, without loss of generalizability, that when viewing left and right with equal number of votes, the protocol tie break favors left over right. Now, if the adversary manages to deliver a withheld adversarial vote for right from an earlier slot to roughly one half of honest validators for the current slot before validators submit their votes for slot I that we're at, while the other half does not receive the said vote before casting their votes, then roughly half of honest nodes, half of honest validators, those who have received the sway vote in just in time, well, they see right as leading and will vote for it in slot I, while the other half, those who see the sway vote too late and hence at the time of voting see a tie which they break in favor of left, will vote for left in slot I. Idealizing the above as voting according to a coin flick for each validator, roughly half of the honest nodes would vote for honest validators per slot, and they would vote for the left. And so if we could, in the real world, know the, the evidence of the delay in real-world propagation of the gossip protocol for Ethereum, then an adversary can indeed reliably delay the decision between right and left. So this is the second kind of attack that the paper brings forward, and it deals with being a smart enough and large enough staker to be able to tip the scales and balance of delaying network finality. Remember, if we have two chains and neither of them are getting justified and finalized, we are delaying that network finality that the proof of stake mechanism relies on. Now, there are two sections here that we are going to skip, um, and they deal with the detailed description of the attack, as well as the experimental evaluations and how do they, how do the researchers prove that they can actually time the gossip protocol with a high enough degree of certainty to, to do this kind of fine point attack. Um, and here they actually, they show a really good job of running 750 nodes that they managed to measure the time delay in Ethereum's gossip protocol, at least enough to, to run this attack with a high degree of certainty. And now we're going to move on to section five, which combines these two kinds of attacks that we have been discussing. So section five is reorg attack using probabilistic network delay. 5.1 motivation. In section three, we describe how an adversary might execute a one reorg with only a single adversarial committee member's vote. In section four, we show how an adversary can stall consensus and thus delay finality without adversarial control over network delay. By combining ideas from both attacks, we now describe an attack in which the adversary can execute a long-range reorg with vanishingly small stake and without control 
over network delay. On a high level, the adversary avoids competing directly with honest validators of k-1 committees, as done in the reorg attack described in section 3. Instead, the adversary uses the technique of section 4 to keep honest committee members split roughly in half by ensuring they have different views on what the current head of the chain is. This way, honest nodes work against each other and maintain a tie which the adversary can tip to their liking at any point using only a few votes. 5.2. Refined strategy using probabilistic network delay. Consider figure 5, in which the adversary is the proposer of slot n plus 1. We describe the strategy where the adversary executes a 2 reorg and analyze how many validators the adversary needs to control depending on our assumption on the adversary's control over the network. And here I'll describe figure five, which in many ways is similar to figure one. So we have block n, and similar to figure one, block n plus one is hidden. And so because it's hidden, block n plus two builds itself off of block n, and block n plus three builds itself off of n plus two, and only when we reach slot n plus 4 do we then kind of create and show our block n plus 1 which is attested by block n and therefore has more weight than n plus 2 and then n plus 4 gets built on block n plus 1 and blocks n plus 2 and n plus 3 get orphaned so that's what the figure describes and now i'm going to break it down as it's written so first in slot n plus 1 the adversary privately builds block n plus 1 on top of the current head of the chain, which is block n. Further, the adversary privately votes for block n plus 1 using an attestation from slot n plus 1. In the next slot, the proposer of block n plus 2 builds on block n because they have not seen block n plus 1. Before honest validators in slot n plus 2 attest, the adversary releases block n plus 1 along with the withheld attestation in such a way that roughly half of honest committee members of slot n plus 2 attest before they see the sway vote, and thus vote for block n plus 2 as the current head. The other half sees block n plus 1 as leading, due to the attestation from slot n plus 1, and thus vote for block n plus 1 as the current head. I'll pause. Remember, we just did this kind of attack scenario where honest nodes vote in the case of an equal left and right chain of equal length, they kind of get split half and half. And this is where we combine the first kind of attack with the second kind of attack. If the adversary has control over the network delay as assumed, then it can target the release of the withheld block and vote such that block n plus 2 accumulates exactly one more attestation than block n plus 1. If network delay is instead a probabilistic as in section 4, then the adversary needs to spend big O notation over the root of the number of honest nodes, adversarial votes to rebalance the gap in votes. In the case of a K reorg, where it's not just one block, this step is repeated for the first K minus 1 slots. Since slot N plus 3 is the last slot of the reorg attack, we use the insight of section 3 that the adversary does not have to wait for honest votes to take place and rebalance them, but instead can sway validators towards the adversarial chain as soon as the honest proposal for this slot was created. 
So in slot n plus 3, the current proposer views block n plus 2 as leading, and thus builds block n plus 3 on it. Finally, the adversary releases two withheld attestations, such that a majority of honest committee members of slot n plus 3 views them before attesting. Thus, a majority of validators votes for block n plus 1 as head of the chain. Remember that the fork choice rule only considers attestations at least one slot old. Lastly, in slot n plus 4, the proposer viewer blocks n plus 1 as leading and thus builds block n plus 4 on block n plus 1. This completes the two reorg and orphans block n plus 2 and n plus 3. For one reorg, the adversary needs to control a single validator in the same slot they propose their block. For reorgs of lengths k is greater than 1, the number of adversarial validators required depends on the level of control over network delays. If delays are under adversarial control, then 2k-1 adversarial validators suffice for a k reorg, an amount linear in the reorg length only, but independent of the size of the validator set. If instead network delay is probabilistic rather than under adversarial control, a vanishingly small fraction of adversarial validators suffices to perform the necessary rebalancing to maintain the tie throughout the first k-1 slots of the k reorg, leading to an overall requirement of large O notation of k multiplied by the root of the honest number of nodes, and that is the amount of adversarial votes we need. Thus, large stakers can easily execute long-range reorg attacks. To illustrate the severe reduction of attacking conditions, consider the following. Under adversarial network delay, an adversary can perform a 10 reorg by merely controlling 19 validators. Section 6. Discussion. 6.1. Ex-ante versus ex-post reorgs. Typically, reorgs refer to an attack in which the adversary observes a block that they subsequently attempt to fork out. We call this an ex-post reorg attack. The reorg attacks we describe are different in nature. Here, the adversary attempts to fork out a future block that is unknown to the adversary at the start of the attack. We call this an ex-ante reorg attack. In an ex-post reorg attack, the adversary typically targets a block with abnormally large rewards that the adversary seeks to capture for themselves. In the context of Bitcoin, it could be a block that contains transactions paying extraordinary amounts of fees, also referred to as whale transactions. In the context of Ethereum, it could be blocks containing large MEV opportunities. Upon observing a lucrative block, the adversary attempts to capture it retrospectively. In proof-of-stake Ethereum, this proves to be exceptionally difficult for non-majority actors due to the fact that the block the adversary wishes to orphan quickly accrues attestations from committee members in parallel. Each attestation adds weight to the block in question, which in turn is considered by the fork choice rule LMD ghost to determine the head of the chain. In short, no technique is known for non-majority adversaries to perform ex-post reorg attacks reliably. In contrast, ex-ante reorg attacks are currently very much possible in proof-of-stake Ethereum, as this paper shows. The adversary overcomes the power of many parallel attestations by exploiting LMD ghost as described in sections 3 and 5. Intuitively, this is enabled by tricking honest validators into contrary views of the chain, such that a handful of adversary va validators are sufficient to tip the chain to their favor, and thus successfully perform reorgs of sizable length. 
as a consequence of the different nature of the attacks, the adversary's motivation to attack are different. In an ex-ante reorg, the adversary cannot observe valuable blocks and orphan them ex-post, but must find other strategies to extract more value from it than it could from making an honest proposal, one of which is discussed in the next section. Section 6.2, Reaping Higher Fees and MEV Via the Attack. Maximal extractable value, MEV, which was formerly known as minor extractable value, represents a third source of profits for block producers, along with a proposer and a tester rewards, as well as transaction fees. MEV in proof-of-stake Ethereum captures the block proposer's action space to extract value by strategically including and ordering transactions in a given block. Common MEV opportunities include arbitraging a trade, front-running it to earn greater profits, or tailing liquidation events to buy the collateralized assets backing the defaulting position. MEV opportunities grow with an increasing amount of pending transactions, since more possible transactions order combinations exist. At the same time, the adversary is able to choose from a larger set of pending transactions, those earning them the highest fees. More time between blocks then implies weekly more extractable MEV and transaction fees, which in turn implies more profits for the block proposer. The reorg attacks described in this paper can be interpreted as buying the adversary more time to construct their block. With K reorgs, it's possible for the malicious proposer to extend their listening period to up to 12K seconds, the 12 seconds elapsed between the previous blocks produced and their own slot, as well as 12 multiplied by K minus one more seconds until the next honest block is included in the canonical chain. With K reorgs in less idealized scenarios as described in section three, the adversary only gains an additional 12 seconds of listening time, 24 seconds in total. This is due to the fact that in the refined strategy using probabilistic network delays, the adversary always releases the private block early, irrespective of reorg length k, to split honest committee members roughly in half. Further, the adversary may listen to honest blocks they wish to orphan, and capture their MEV should they find better opportunities than the adversary themselves. Interestingly, the adversary may also simply release their block late, without attempting a reorg to increase their listening time and ultimately rewards. 6.3. Reorgs cause attestation overflow. While reorg attacks weakly benefit those who launch them, consensus degradation may be obtained as an unintended side effect of the reorg. Validators in a slot committee are distributed among a number of subcommittees, with a target subcommittee size of 128 and currently 230,000 active validators equals approximately 57 subcommittees are formed per slot. In the current implementation of proof-of-stake Ethereum, all identical votes from the same subcommittee may be aggregated into one summary vote, lightening the block size. A block may include up to 128 such aggregates. Ideally, with all validators voting correctly, and on time, the next block need only feature 57 aggregates, one per subcommittee. In practice, we observe such a number of large aggregates in the block, with most validators voting identically, along with some aggregates summarizing other votes from validators who may have suffered from latency issues and voted identically, albeit wrongly. Suboptimal packing of the aggregates or adversarial voting behavior may also contribute to filling up the available slots for aggregates in the block. In the case of a reorg, deconfirmed aggregates return into the mempool 
and need to be included in future blocks. Even for short-range reorgs, this can lead to congestion in that sense that many more aggregates wait to be included than there is space available in blocks. Votes state their view of the current target of the FFG mechanism. A target vote is valid only if it's included in a block no later than 32 slots after the attesting slot. By reorging blocks, an attacker strains the capacity of the chain to include these valid votes. In the worst case, finalization is fully delayed whenever more than a third minus the beta of valid notes not manage to be included. 6.4 Delaying Finality Our attacks also enable a priori malign actors, perhaps ideologically motivated, to delay and in some cases outright stall consensus decisions. The refined attack of section 4.2 gives the adversary a tool to do just that, even if the adversary cannot control message propagation delays, which instead are assumed to be probabilistic. Furthermore, in the regime of many validators, a vanishing fraction of adversarial stake suffices to mount the attack. The attack of section 5 enables long-range reorgs of the chain constituting consensus. The consequences are twofold. Readily, transaction confirmation in the LMD ghost part of the protocol gets delayed. Transactions might enter or leave the LMD ghost chain multiple times before eventually settling. This causes uncertainty and delays for users who consider a transaction confirmed once it is stabilized in the LMD ghost chain. Furthermore, the adversary can use reorgs as proposed to destabilize epoch boundary blocks. No epoch boundary block might then get the necessary number of FFG votes to become justified, which delays finality by at least an epoch and thus creates delay for users who rely on the finalized ledger. And that is a wrap on three attacks on proof-of-stake Ethereum. I'm going to give a brief summary here just to make sure that it kind of sticks together. And then on Friday, I will go a little bit more into personal thoughts or rebuttals that I've read on Reddit or at the Ethereum Foundation or ETHRD on how they kind of rebut or approach this, because at the end of the day, this is research everyone knows about because it's in part it's written by the Ethereum Foundation. So just to recap, we have two consensus mechanisms for Ethereum, and they're really one consensus mechanism, but they both deal at different time ranges. One is the short time range, which is LMD ghost. The other Casper FFG deals with the longer time ranges, so the epochs. And finality and justification of an epoch only happens when a, a, an overall epoch boundary block has enough attestations. And playing at the boundaries of epochs or playing between block slots is where all of these attacks come into play. The two attacks that are the foundation of this paper are one of them is a reorg attack, where basically you're trying to reorganize the blockchain and create an orphan block, whether it was proposed before the fact or after the fact, that's a distinction they make later on, we'll get to that in a second. That's one kind of attack, a reorg attack. The second is a, I'm going to call it a delayed finality attack, where you want to use network assumptions to mess up the vote. And if you can time your voting scheme and gossip protocol well enough, then you can fine tune the vote by just tipping the scales enough. And that delays finality. 
So these are two prior works that this paper relies on, and those works are in the references. They get referenced quite a lot. I haven't referenced them per se throughout the reading, um, but I will do so now. So one of them is called Low-Cost Attacks on Ethereum 2.0. Another is called Attacking Gasper Without Adversarial Network Delay. A third is called A Balancing Attack on Gasper, the current candidate for ETH2's beacon chain. And yet another Analysis of Bouncing Attack on FFG. And all of these are referenced in the actual paper, and you can find a link to the paper in the podcast notes. But those two attacks are the basis. Um, and basically, the first attack, the reorg attack, is where we hide a block long enough and count on the fact that LMD Ghost knows that the attestations that we get because we can organize them in a certain way, when we show our block, it'll get more weight in the chain. And if we time it correctly, then the block who comes after us, who didn't see our block and built theirs on the prior block, will get orphaned. Now, the paper does a really nice, elegant uh, observation of this kind of attack is we are doing it before we know what that block will be. We're doing it prior. This is a very different case than a big fat MEV block, which we do post-fact, where we see backdated that there was a, a block that got a lot of rewards, and then we try and fork it off. That's more of the classic 51% attack in, from the Bitcoin world, where we write blocks, and then we want to write a different longer chain that kind of has our way of doing things. Um, and that's a different kind of forking attack than this one, where it's it's almost random. We're, we're preparing to do this attack before we know what the next block will actually have in it. So there's that element of uncertainty that gets added to the discussion. But that's one kind of attack. The second kind of attack deals with controlling the messages that get sent in the network. And this can delay finality if you have at least 15% of the stake. And from prior episodes here, you know that some nodes in the network have more than 15% of the stake, and that at the moment would be Lido, who among their validator set, I think it's currently 19 different validator nodes, they control around 15 to 20% of Ethereum's proof of stake staking pools. So this is actually a very real concern. And this attack basically says that if we control enough percent of the stake, then we can propagate our messages timed properly in a probabilistic method so that we can just sway the vote just in time to create basically um, a situation of gridlock where the honest vote nodes are voting and the malicious nodes are voting. So we have these two chains of equal length and it's tough for the consensus mechanism to know which chain is the right one. And then the third attack, which co combines the two, basically says we can do a long range reorg attack because we're using this probabilistic mechanism of making sure that the vote doesn't go either way until we do our reorg. And here we're, we gave an example of just five slots where two blocks get orphaned, but you can imagine that this can be for much longer time periods, in which case we have a really long range reorg of 10, 15, 30, 40, 60 blocks. And if those blocks are the boundary blocks between epochs, then we're even 
in a bigger bind because we don't reach the finality, the justification that Ethereum proof of stake needs to give that security, that certainty of finality to its users. So those are the attacks that this paper brings to bear. It's very convincing. I highly recommend you go review the paper yourself. Just kind of look at the charts, look at the figures, look a little bit more at the the method of the experimentation and give a listen on Friday when we dive into just some rebuttals or just some thoughts on what, what we think about this. Can we use Ethereum even though we know these attacks exist? Thank you.